0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The P-Word,
1: Provence Traps and Initiates the Unwary. And the author is Renee Lewis. And Renee joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Hello, Renee.
2: Hi, Steve.
1: Well, the best way to sum this up, and it's humorous, it's about relationships, it's about marriage, and I want to read what you've written in general about the book, and then we'll get into the details, and we'll talk about the unique characters. You say this, there are a lot of books about France, and in particular, about life in Provence. Just as there are a lot of books on French cooking, my book is different because It is centered on the humorous aspects of a relationship that has Provence as the backdrop. Why write the book, Renee? A lot of books written about France.
3: That is true. There are a lot of books written about France, and a large percentage are written about Provence. And that's because Provence is such a a special place. Um, A lot of people, of course, have traveled there, and Peter Maley has written about uh, France and Provence too many, many years ago. I think his first book was A Year in Provence. And um, everybody has a different take on Provence. And, and my take, as you mentioned, um, really is a relationship between a husband and wife who have never been to Provence. And Andy Becker, the, the man, uh, the husband, is trapped really by his wife into going to Provence, uh, reluctantly agreeing to go there. So the, uh, ba- the uh, backdrop turns out to be Provence for the relationship of this couple during the month that they spend there. And my book is um, a little different, I think. Certainly the scenery is pretty much the same as a lot of authors have described, But the relationship between the two characters and especially uh, Andy's way of looking at life before he travels to Provence, and then once he spends much of his summer in Provence, really changes him. He ends up having uh, a different view about how he's conducting his life and the ways uh, that he might change to become a more kind of a relaxed, Uh, more laid-back personality.
1: You take an interesting approach, obviously, as the female author looking at life through the male main character. Now, why did you choose to do that?
3: Well, it didn't start that way, Steve. Um, I started um, writing this in the traditional fashion of the third-person voice. And then after... Oh, several pages when I went back and reread everything and thought about it. I thought this has kind of a a distance um, in explaining the characters through this format, and I didn't really care for it that much. So I said, "Well, I'm going to change it, and I'll have the story told through Margaret Becker's eyes." So then I started that, and after toying with. Margaret Becker telling the events of their life together and going to Provence I thought "Mm, this isn't really sizzling the way I want it to Um, because Margaret was explaining so much about Andy and what she thought Andy was thinking so I decided to flip it and by flipping it then I had Andy uh, tell his story and Margaret's story and that really seemed to work Um, there was better vitality, I would say, in the writing, and uh, everything was through Andy's uh, eyes, which gave it um, a freshness and more of a humorous approach. So that's the way the book ended up um, being written through Andy Becker's eyes.
1: Well, many people find this fascinating because you call yourself a girly girl. In fact, you admitted that before we started uh, this radio interview that you brushed your hair and put on lipstick for this radio interview. That's right.
2: <laughs> well,
3: of course, I would brush my hair anyway.
1: anyway.
3: I, but I took special pains in brushing my hair today. <laughs> Absolutely. Well,
1: well, you need to do that when you're on the radio. You have to feel good, good, right? You have to Absolutely. feel good.
3: That's it, Yeah. So I, I would say that people would describe me as being you know, a girly girl, yeah. so it was kind of unusual that all of a sudden I was uh, writing uh, from the male viewpoint, and that was surprising to um, a lot of people. But it just seemed to work, and people have been fascinated by that, and they, and they like that, and a lot of um, men who have read the book have said to me, boy, you really nailed the male perspective. So I think that's kind of an interesting aside as well.
1: Well, how did you nail the male perspective?
3: Well, I have a long relationship with men. <laughs> <laughs> no, know, this sounds like it's going in another direction now. <laughs> well, I—I I was one of let's see, I—I I had three brothers. Um, you know, I've been in co-ed atmosphere, uh, in, a co-ed environment for. Long time. Uh, I worked basically in a male profession. I was an attorney, and uh, and I I like men. Uh, I've been married a couple of times. Maybe that helps as well too. So I think all of these things went into the stew of of life. S T E W of of life, and uh, has uh, has kind of given me. Um, a particular view on the way men look at things by realizing you know men are not cookie cutter uh, types of personalities we you know one size fits all or anything like that
1: provence had a great impact on andy why did it have such an impact what is so special about provence sounds like a place that we all should go to
3: mm-hmm. provence is um a very beautiful area um, a lot of people feel somewhat spiritual when they travel to Provence. It's a place where a lot of people who live in Paris go uh, to get out of the city and go to the south of France and to partake of what's described as beautiful um, shadows and sunlight and gorgeous plain trees and uh, wonderful vines and flowers growing off buildings and so it's a very relaxing place, and also this very good food. Um, a lot of robust type of meals um, are also offered, and wonderful wine country, uh, uh, vineyards all over the place. And Andy found himself relaxing and unwinding in Provence. And before he went there, he would be—he was the kind of person who was very exacting. Um, If he were going to be planting his tulip bulbs in the fall, he would take out his ruler. And if the direction said plant four and a half inches below ground, Andy had his holes all dug four and a half inches below ground uh, for the bulbs. And he would scour and sanitize his terracotta flower pots before he put them away to put his flowers in in the next spring. And this is just one small thing. Then when he went to Provence, he was noticing kind of a haphazard beauty. A lot of these terracotta flower pots had moss growing on the outside and they were and speckled with uh, maybe paint droppings that had never been scraped off. And, um, and a lot of the flowers that were growing in these pots were not prize winners even for the county fair, but they had a lot of charm. So this was just one small way that Andy realized that he could achieve beauty by just kind of relaxing with it all instead of trying to meet a specific standard so there were a whole series of things like this and also with food and traveling and getting along with Margaret during these uh, four weeks in Provence when they rented this little house because Margaret and he had a lot of differences in their personalities but he was able to compromise and she was too and so the trip was successful so I would say that by taking a risk and going to a place that he really didn't want to go to at all in the beginning, he ended up learning more about himself, that he could enjoy himself if he just relaxed a little bit.
1: You call this a relationship story, a marriage story, a -hmm. love story? Mm Mm-hmm. Now, Margaret... Uh, is she recognizing this change that is occurring to Andy
3: um, actually I think not uh, you'd have to probably read that into the story uh, because it's not very clear if she is um, my sense is that she has not and she does not recognize it Um now, a couple people said to me, are you going to be writing a sequel? Because it'll be interesting to see what happens with them. And I don't have a plan for that, but, uh, but that's a good question. No one has asked me that question before, if Margaret recognizes the changes in Andy. Um, but I, I don't think she does, and it's funny because um, now I'm talking about them as if they are real people.
2: Better <laughs>
3: and steve that's what happened i mean once i that's began right. to write this story and i would go into this room i call my boudoir and where i would shut the door and sit on my chaise lounge and start you know writing on my computer uh after you brushed I, your
1: hair and put on lipstick
3: <laughs> that's right and then i um I was looking forward to to seeing what Andy and Margaret were going to be doing, and they started to really gel as two people. And you probably have heard other authors say
1: that. The
3: characters become real to them.
1: The the characters start speaking and they go, oh my goodness, (laughs) what did they say?
3: (laughs) That's right. I mean, it's really strange. uh, I've heard people say that occurs and I I was really surprised that that's actually what happens. It's kind of, a as weird as it sounds, an out-of-body experience in a way Hmm. um, to have these two people who were there, and I could picture them and
1: right. uh, and
3: all of this, and uh, so it was very interesting. But um, I don't think she ever, uh, during the course of the book, recognizes the changes in Andy. That's why, um, because the changes, of course, always occur in any of us uh, internally before they are manifested by right. actions. And there might be a gap from the internal change to the actions. And um, so uh, that's why it was so important to have Andy tell the story, because we are with him on this, and we are hearing from him what he's thinking.
1: Are there any other characters that they interact with that are important to your story?
3: Uh, Yes. Andy has a very good friend named Woody, and... um, he and Woody are good guy pals, and that is developed um, during the first few chapters of the book. In fact, um, as I mentioned, Andy is really reluctant to take this trip, but Margaret's the one who's enthused about going, and she pushes him into it, and one of Andy's excuses is he can't leave his dog. Andy has a dog named Spooky, and he's had Spooky for a long time, and he. You know, so I can't leave Spooky. Who's going to take care of Spooky? Well, Woody, his pal, comes forward, and Woody's wife, and they end up caring for Spooky during the time that uh, Andy goes. So, but Andy and uh, Andy and um, uh, Woody have kind of a typical guy relationship. They talk about sports and fishing and things like that.
1: So but, we get we... Woody's is important. So we get to know Andy more than we get to know Margaret?
3: Yes, for sure.
1: Ah, mm-hmm. okay. Yep. All right, so... Yeah, uh,
3: Margaret's important to the story, obviously. Sure. But mm-hmm. she's almost like the foil, but, Okay. But she's very important,
1: yeah. All right, mm-hmm. well, it looks like a visit to a, what do we call it? I hate to call Provence a tourist center, or maybe it is. Would you call it a tourist center?
3: I would say sections of it are, Okay. yes. And then uh, Provence is sprinkled with all these little tiny towns, and a lot of them are off the beaten path. And Andy and Margaret stay in a place called Sorg, and Sorg is on the Sorg River. And it's a small town, but it's known for uh, its antiques. It's an antique center, actually. But Andy and Margaret rent a car, which brings with it a whole host of problems. They travel around to all these little villages and hamlets that are uh, away from the tourists. But then they also do a lot of the tourist things, too.
1: Well, Renee, uh, we'll end up with uh, a statement that you have written. Uh, You say the P word appeals to people who have visited France, especially Provence, who want to travel to Provence, who want a light, humorous read or want to read about a close relationship. In this case, a husband and wife with ups downs and compromises. Well, Renee, tell us how to get your book.
3: Well, uh, the book is available from the publishing company, which is iUniverse.com. It's also available from major uh, booksellers, such as Amazon.com and uh, BarnesandNoble.com, all the dot-coms. And it's available as a hardcover, soft cover, or an e-book as well. And um, I have a website if any of your uh, listeners would like to take a look at that. It's just www. and then small letters, Renee Roche, R O S C H, dot com. And um, hopefully they'll be able to get on the website and read about the book and some other things of interest as well.
1: Well, thank you, Renee. Thanks for being on iUniverse Radio.
3: Thank you, Steve. It's been fun talking to you.
1: That was Renee Lewis. She is the author of her book, The P-Word, Provence Traps and Initiates the Unwary.
4: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. was born shortly after her fourth child a boy jerome now she's really got tons of topics to share with you this is laugh out loud funny and we're not kidding what's a loud nebraska girl who lived in little rock for many years and now is up in the northeast doing chronicling her opinions on everything the wheels aren't off yet but it's close it's the not so soccer bomb with jill hickey tuesday afternoons at one eastern noon central on Toginet.com. what's your story now live your story your brand is not just what you say it is it's also what others say it is so what are you communicating And how can you create an authentic brand? We'll take on these challenges with What's Your Story? Every week, Hillary will feature teens, moms, and organizations that are learning and living their story. Now, her passion is to help others discover, create, and live their personal brands. To find out more, go to inspiredbyfamily.com. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbrey. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The
1: Boy Who Conquered Everest. And the author is Catherine Blank. And this iUniverse Radio segment is brought to you by Balboa Press. Hello, Catherine. Hello. Well, this is such an honor to have you on the show. What a story about Jordan Romero. He may be a best kept secret but it won't be long because of your book and other things that will be going on jordan who is now 14 climbed mount everest now that is beyond comprehension for most of us as adults or certainly as teenagers can't even begin to understand how this year may 22nd 2010 at 9:45 a.m he reached the summit of mount everest Tell us how you got involved with him, and tell us about how this Jordan's uh, dream all started.
2: Okay, I got involved with this book because Jordan and I live in the same little mountain town, Big Bear Lake, California, and uh, Jordan comes from a long line of athletes on both sides of the family, uh, but he he really came to uh, local, the attention of local media when he was nine years old, and he declared that he was going to... Uh, along with his parents, his father and his stepmother, Karen, uh, they were. he was going to attempt to summit all seven of what are known as the Seven Summits, which are the, the tallest mountains on each of the seven continents in the world. And there, there are actually eight of them, so uh, he set a sight on climbing all eight. And I been, was following this story in the local newspaper. Nobody really knew much about him outside of this region. But uh, I kept telling myself, this would make a great story. This kid is amazing, and look what he's doing, and he's got such a great attitude, and he wants to help other kids. And I thought, oh, I just kept thinking about it. But it never got beyond thought for the first three and a half years. And and as he wrapped up his sixth summit, uh, I told myself, oh, I've got to approach him. So I did. I, I met with him and his parents and told them what I wanted to do, and he was flattered that anyone would think to write a book about him, that's how humble he is, and I set out on this journey to document the uh, climbs that he had already, uh, the summits he had attained, and his attempt at Mount Everest, wrapping up with the summiting of Mount Everest this past May, as you said.
1: Well, he started thinking about this four years ago, he was nine years old, and there was a mural in his school that showed, what, the, these summits around the world?
2: Yes, these Seven Summits. Known mainly to mountaineers, people in the climbing community, but uh, of course they're becoming more well known now.
1: And so here he is, a third grader, and, and and comes home and announces to his father that he wants to climb Mount Everest. <laughs> That's
2: Mount Everest his goal. That's. A- <laughs> I know, and and the thing is, he was a cle- he's a very bright kid, and he was clever enough to have. I, he saw that mural, and then he went to the school library, and he looked up seven summits, and he did his research. He was able to come to his dad and say, Dad, I want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro and Mount Elbrus and Mount Aconcagua and, and, and Mount Carson's Pyramid and Kosciuszko and Everest and Vincent, and he had all the statistics and the facts and figures and what time of year to climb, and he had it mapped out, which, which definitely blew his dad away.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, you know, it's one thing uh, that kids come to us with their dreams and their goals, but there's probably only one Jordan, isn't there?
2: There's probably only one Jordan. And uh, I, I must say that there were concerned parents uh, who heard of, uh, especially the, when the focus came up in the spotlight on the, the attempt at Everest, who said, ah, how how could anyone take their child up right. there? That's that's child abuse, or, or <laughs> that's that's very, very irresponsible. Yeah, they're just they trying to take understand.
1: advantage of this young boy so they can make a lot of money or something, right?
2: Right. They thought he was being exploited or dragged right. up there or carried up there to, for some reality show purposes. Right. But no, that's not the truth. The, the truth of the matter is that people didn't—they weren't familiar with Jordan's background. He was already climbing mountains. Uh, his, he comes from, his father is an adventure uh, racer and climber. His, his family, his grandfather, they're all mountain climbers. They're all... Skiers, ski patrol, athletes, all-American football. I mean, these this is a family of jocks. They really are. And so Jordan was strapped onto a, a backpack at, when he was a few months old and going up mountains. So he, this is a terrain that's very familiar to him. And he had good people around him to train him. So it's—he is, the, is. there's only one Jordan. I, I, and, and he's not telling people to try to duplicate what he's done. His message is really in this book to try to find your own avarice and whatever that may be set a big goal and break it down into small pieces
1: right well that's a message to all of us at all ages obviously Uh, we all have dreams well let's turn a dream into a goal and then it may sound wild and crazy uh, to others but go for it that's what he's saying right
2: right go for it within your means within your capacity, whatever your aptitude is, but don't just settle or don't uh, turn away from that dream because that will come back to haunt you later. You do want to go for it. You don't have to even attain it. It's just it, the, the celebration is in the journey itself.
1: Well, in this radio interview, we certainly can't do justice to way the way you created this book. It is so different, so visual. Uh, it's really geared toward the uh, what age group would you say mostly?
2: Well, whenever you publish a book, you have to have kind of a target audience, and that just helps you uh, gear it towards that audience. Everything you put into it. So, I had my target was ages eight to fourteen or fifteen. Although adults are approaching me and, and they're saying that this book is inspiring them as well. And they're loving the fact that it's visual and it doesn't have a lot of text. <laughs> Everyone likes to look at pictures. Right. So, <laughs> lots of <laughs> I'm pictures. Lots of compliments from
1: <laughs> lots of outdoor pictures. Lots of uh, different kinds of graphics, you know, explaining all that uh, Jordan had to do and what he accomplished.
2: Right. I wanted to take the reader along on these journeys so that they could ex- kind of experience them in a vicarious way through the photos and really see what he was seeing.
1: Of course, we can go to uh, two different websites and see all that we're talking about. Tell us those websites.
2: Okay, uh, there are two outstanding websites. One is for the book itself, and that's just simply the title, Boy Who Conquered Everest.com, all run together, Boy Who Conquered Everest.com. That has information on the book itself. And then uh, to learn more about Jordan Romero, he has a terrific website that's always changing and updating, and that is www.jordanromero.com, and that's J-O-R-D-A-N-R-O-M-E-R-O, jordanromero.com. And that will that'll keeps you posted on what he's doing. He has a blog. He has photos. He's preparing to do another uh, climb this winter, uh, summiting Mount Vincent in Antarctica. So he's always doing things. Great site.
1: Now, of course, to do something as monumental as this, he had to find people who believed in him, and not only just uh, for uh, emotional support, and, but for money.
2: Right. Yes, it's very expensive. Jordan is not from a wealthy family, so uh, and that was another uh, misunderstanding. People thought that he was the, uh, just some rich kid who was... Uh, trying to find something to do and with his money and, and uh, that's not the case he, he sold t-shirts they had taco night fundraisers he spoke with people from the outdoor products industry telling them about his goals uh, he had to get sponsors most of his sponsors were from the industry itself and a lot of the, the sponsorship was simply equipment donations so it, it was a they had to take out personal loans and it was a struggle And then, just as he was about to summit Everest, two sponsors had their own financial difficulties, I guess, and they pulled out. So it was down to the wire. It was really scary for them. One minute on, one minute off. But, yes, very, very expensive. Um, And he did. He he went around to every place, every company, every individual he could and told them about his dream, and he did. He found people who believed in him and companies who believed in him.
1: Now, in preparing for Everest... He climbed how many mountains and on how many different continents?
2: He climbed six, um, starting in Africa, Mount Kilimanjaro at the age of 10. And then he continued on, and he climbed... Uh,
1: and that's 19,000 feet. Ten years old, right. climbing 19,340 feet.
2: <laughs> right, and, and everybody kept telling him, slow down, pace yourself. But he just, he was so prepared. He'd been training like a wild man for this. And so he was in great shape, and uh, he was actually leading the expedition up. And the people, especially the the Tanzanian guides, they just fell in love with him.
1: Oh, I'm sure <laughs> and he
2: was their little hero.
1: <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. So he went from Mount Kilimanjaro, and then what else?
2: Well, he continued on. The second the second summit was Mount Kosciuszko, which is it's a very funny one. Uh, it's not a very tall mountain. It's in Australia, but it is tallest, the tallest peak on the continent of Australia. So there is a thing in mountain climbing, uh, a dispute over the seven summits and whether that is, uh, truly uh, qualifies or not. So in order to dispel any argument, Jordan said, nope, let's climb it. So actually, uh, it'll end up being a total of, when he finishes Antarctica, article, the eight that he's done. But that, that way he's conquered all seven summits without question. So Kosciuszko, and he did that in 2007. Then he went on to Russia, to Europe, Mount Elbrus. Elbrus is the tallest uh, summit in Russia, and that is 18,500 feet. He did that in July of 2007, one day before his birthday, which was made a special birthday. Then his fourth summit was Mount Aconcagua, and that was nearly 23,000 feet, and that is a brutal mountain.
3: Uh, many
2: people die on that mountain. Many expeditions don't even make it to the top because of the wind. Uh, the winds can reach up 110 miles an hour, and with ice crystals, and they've blown people off the mountain. So he 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 had to get a special permit for that because he was technically too young. But he was able to demonstrate that he was in shape and had the mental and physical capabilities and the training to do it. Uh, it also helped that his father Paul is a medic trained in uh, wilderness medicine, and uh, so he's you know he had really good support. So he did that, uh, completed that summit in December of 2007. Then he went on to Mount McKinley, which is also known as Denali, in the state of Alaska in the U.S. That's 20,320 feet, also a very dangerous mountain certain times of the year. But they were very strategic in planning the, the date of their, their uh, expedition and their climb. He summited that in June of 2008. Then they went on to the tropics to Papua New Guinea, and he summited uh, the Karsten's Pyramid, which is uh, 16,024 feet. That is the one, the other of the two controversial summits, because this one is on the uh, technically considered the Australian continental shelf. So it's a separate landmass from Australia. So you see where the, the technical uh, arguments go back and forth with that. So he went ahead and climbed that one, which was solid rock, he left rainforest at the bottom and ended up in just freezing rain at the top. <laughs> totally different climate. Completed that September of 2009. And then he was planning on going to Antarctica, but he was considered too young. They denied him a permit. So he said, okay, we'll do that later. And he went on to Everest.
1: <laughs> <laughs> on to Everest. at. Uh,
2: on to Everest. Yes, what, t-
1: 29,000? Was that the... Yes, 29,000.
2: See, 29,035 is the latest recorded one. although
1: With winds crazy. that could get up to 100 miles an hour and temperatures oh, that yes. could be 40 below.
2: And Mount Everest is, it's not a solid, you know, you think of it as this mountain that's going to be there forever. Mount Everest is actually crumbling. It is eroding and crumbling and melting. And so he had to deal with uh, collapses of entire ice, which are huge columns that are melting and falling. Uh, the rock itself is, is decomposed, and is, it crumbles. Uh, huge chunks of it will come down. If the climber above you has a toehold and it breaks loose, so, uh, a piece of rock the size of a suitcase can come straight at you. Uh, yeah, he had the, to deal with a lot, and the weather is the number one factor because technically uh, Everest is pretty mapped out in terms of how to summit, how to climb it, and he went on the north side from tibet tibet slash china uh but yeah the weather but, but the whole secret of climbing everest is that you have to find what's called a weather window which are these little breaks that come just from mid-april to late may and then that window closes up and once it closes up you can still try to summit it but it's it's extremely dangerous and his family didn't want to put him in any kind right. of danger other than what he would expect normally on everest which is uh, risky enough
1: So again, on May 22nd, 2010, he reached the summit, 13 years young. And as you write, there's only one Jordan Romero. Not only is he a world record setter, but he lives to inspire other kids to achieve big goals and dreams. Well, that kind of sums it up. I guess what really I'd like to just end on is a quote that you have in the book. The first man to climb to the summit of Mount Everest in 1953 sir edmund hillary and what did he say
2: he said it is not the mountain we conquer but ourselves
1: that's really what jordan is all about isn't he
2: yes that sums it up beautifully
1: well tell us how to get your book catherine
2: well this book the boy who conquered everest is available uh through directly through Balabola press it's also available from hay house which is a kind of a co-publisher and, uh, of course, uh, uh, online, uh, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Orders.com, etc., as well as uh, available for an order through your local bookseller.
1: Well, thank you so much. My goodness, what an inspirational young man and what an inspirational story. Thank you for investing of yourself and making us aware and giving us So much to think about, and this is only the beginning, I'm sure. There's going to be much more from Jordan.
2: It's only the beginning, yes, definitely. Not only will he he continue to climb mountains, but he will continue to inspire others uh, to live healthy lifestyles, to get outside, get together with their families, and do activities together. That's what he's all about.
1: Thank you, Catherine.
2: Thank
5: you. Take care, Steve.
1: That was Catherine Blank. She is the author of her book The Boy Who Conquered Everest and this interview is brought to you by Balboa Press.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
3: Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Yes, why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond
4: with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Tuggyknapp.
0: To iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, Insignificant Moments, and the author is Jeremy Asher, and Jeremy joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jeremy. Hi, Steve. I'm going to read to our listeners some things you've written about your book, just to kind of give an overview. And then we'll get into the details. We'll talk about the characters and give people a little peek into this, this uh, fictional romance. And I guess there's uh, some humor along the way and some twists and turns. So this is what you said insignificant moments is a story that speaks to the profound impact a single moment can have on our lives and in our hearts this is a unique story that reveals the destiny of the characters lives and how they are intertwined with one another throughout their journey i think we all can agree that just in a moment of time our entire lives could change so why did you write the book jeremy
5: um the idea came to me actually when uh, when I was sitting at a desk and I was going through my emails and I received a, a chain email and uh, at the time I was having a, a really bad day. I can't even, like right now. I can't remember what it was that was causing a bad day, but I know that the day wasn't very good. And the email kind of brightened my day a little bit. You know, it made things just a little bit better. It seemed like, and so I started thinking about that concept. of Something simple. You know, somebody who, who I've never even met wrote this chain email and, and brightened my day and they, and they don't even know about it. And so I started thinking about a concept where there's a ro- like a romance story where a, a guy writes this email out of frustration, sends it out and affects all these different people. And then how ultimately it ends up affecting his life. And so that's kind of where the idea came from.
1: So the main character, his name is Jay and of According to him, he li- just lives a boring life. Correct. Why is it's that? Kind of
5: a, Well, I wouldn't say I wouldn't go as far as saying it was it's it's boring. It's, it's more uneventful. He lives kind of a. He's a very careful, cautious person, and I think a lot of us can relate um, to people like that in everyday life. Uh, I even myself, I'm a pretty cautious person, and um, he just he's kind of frustrated with himself because he's in his late twenties and he's starting to look back and he's, he's not married. He doesn't have kids. Um, and he's not real happy with where he's positioned in life. So he kind of wishes he would have, he would have taken more chances and he wishes he just would have done a little bit more and been a little bit more aggressive and, and, and gone after opportunities. And so, I mean, that's, that kind of sums up who he is.
1: Well, I, the the I think everyone can can relate to uh, you know when you regret that you didn't do something at that you know at that moment in time you didn't uh, take advantage of the moment or just jump in with both feet so to speak and then that moment goes by and there's maybe that moment never returns right
5: right right and uh, that's exactly how you know he is he he just happens to be one of those people who are overly cautious who is very, um, I guess, uh, just doesn't, when an opportunity comes his way, he has a hard time taking that that leap of faith into, you know, things are going to work out for him.
1: So the book starts out with him conquering uh, maybe some of his fears, doing something that he's never even imagined he could do.
5: Right, right. starts out, basically, he just finished climbing uh, a mountain, and the reason why he climbed the mountain is he he wanted to try to find a deeper meaning in life and uh and find something within himself that he's that he's never seen before and it's the mountain is like a a way for him to uh to discover that
1: and then the probably never could imagine what happened to him happened Uh, just a a moment again moment in time that really becomes more significant than insignificant. Tell us what's happened.
5: Right after after he, the book begins with the prologue, and it takes place with him basically just finished climbing the mountain, and he's starting his journey back, and he runs into uh, a woman who needs rescued, and he, he he's a he's a really good guy, and he um, even though he's cautious and very careful. He, he's also one of those guys that would do just about anything for you. So seeing somebody in, in danger or somebody who needs help, he definitely steps up to the plate and, and uh, helps her. And what happens is in the middle of all the chaos of, of trying to help her and rescue her, um, he he doesn't he doesn't get her name. He doesn't get any information on her. And basically she, she ends up in the rescue helicopter and takes off and it just all dawns on him that, here he is again with another missed opportunity, you know, because it was it was someone who he did feel, even though it was a, a harrowing type of experience, that he did feel a, a little bit of a, an attraction with, and, and, uh, and, and he, she, wished, he wished. Oh, go ahead.
1: And uh, he knew that she connected with him as well.
5: Yeah, there, there was a little bit of a spark there. So, and and he just he wished that he would have, um, you know, I guess been more courageous. And, you know, at least asked for her name, got some information from her. But there again, he's just, he's a very cautious person. And, and uh, he, he lives a lot of, he lives his life in fear quite a bit. And so he, he lets that opportunity pass him by.
1: So there he is. His life is full of missed opportunities and chances never taken, leaving him with a lifetime of regrets, as you write about Jay. But then he decides to do something again different uh he decides to do something with an email tell us about that
5: right after he gets back from the mountain climbing experience um he starts thinking about his whole purpose for going out to the mountain and for clients looking for a deeper meaning within himself and and to start living his life a little bit more with less fear and he remembers um, the girl that he rescued and how he didn't ask for her uh, name or any, or any information about her. And he started feeling just this, this tremendous amount of frustration. And as a way to vent his frustration, he ended up um, just writing an email about basically about it's kind of an inspiring, simple email about um, the key to life and about not, you know, appreciating the small moments and, and not letting things pass you by. And, and just really living life and so he writes this this email and he sends it out to everybody on his address book not even thinking of what it would do or if, if he'd even come back to him
1: and I guess it does come back to him
5: yeah and then, and then three years later at least to three years later um, it actually does come back to him and as he reads the email and all the uh, his message and he reads you know the people's comments, the reader's comments, who have read it, and, and uh, he just feels kind of touched by it, and when he gets the message three years later, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like, has it holds like a new meaning to him, because um, he realized that, you know, he wrote that email in a moment of frustration, sent it out, and for the last three years, he hasn't been living his advice, and so he decides that today's the day, and he's going to He's going to do something today. He's going to do something great. He doesn't know exactly what, yeah, but he's, he he embarks on this journey, and um, um, and that's kind of where the book starts in the beginning.
1: So he doesn't want to live this life of regrets anymore,
5: right? He doesn't he doesn't want to let moments pass him by. And he wants to um, just start appreciating every second that he has.
1: Well, let's talk about some of the other characters. Let's talk about uh, in every fiction story there usually is the antagonist let's go there who is he or she
5: um there's there's that's one unique thing about this book is there are a lot of strong supportive characters in this book and kind of the way i and reason why i approach it this way is because of that the email everything centers around the email and when jay begins this journey where he is going to do something now um he starts to run into different characters. Uh, one of the one of the characters you're introduced to is, is his best friend, Chase, and he's been with him for years and he kind of has moments of, um, inspiration that ignite Jay to, to act. And so he, he kind of, he's kind of a catalyst for Jay helps him to get, to get moving. But then there's other characters that he's going to run into. Uh, one of the characters names is Anna and, uh, he runs into her at a bakery shop and then what happens when you go through the story is there's going to be certain characters that I'll introduce and then you'll, you'll go back and you'll catch up to today. So you'll when he runs into Anna, you'll go back and you'll get to learn about her and what brought her to this moment and you'll see how his email has changed her life. And the email has ultimately brought them to to this point in time. And there's a couple places in this book where that happens. He'll, once you get back, once we get back to present time, then we, we move forward again with Jay and then he'll run into other characters where you'll learn about them as well and about how the email has changed their lives.
1: You say insignificant moments is a contemporary romance. What sets this book apart is the underlying philosophy of the significance a tiny moment can have on our lives. Now, is, is that uh, easily, this theme, is that found easily in other books, or is this what sets you apart?
5: Um, I think that, I, I guess what makes this one um, a little different from the rest is there's a few things that I think that makes it slightly different. And when I, went, when I set out to write this book, I wanted there to be um, something new for a reader. I wanted, to, I wanted it to be new because I wanted the reader to have a hard time putting it down. And I wanted them to not only fall in love with the main character, Jay Logan, I wanted them to fall in love with many characters. And so within this book, it's not just about Jay and his romantic journey. And it's not just about Jay and his appreciation for life, but it's about all these other characters too. And they have their stories that, that are happening and, and you get to, um, you get to experience their lives as well. And, and when you go through this book, um, and you start seeing how their lives are connected. Because not only does the email connect them, but these characters' lives are also intertwined. And um, you start to see certain events that will occur in the book will occur more than once because of the different time sequences within the book, but they'll occur from a different perspective. And so you you may see an event happen in this book from one character, Jay, and then you may see that same event happening from another character uh philip and so when you see it from another perspective it feels different even though it's the same moment in time
1: well that's very com- so, very complex
5: yeah it's it's yeah it sounds very complex but I, I laid it out in a very simple way and 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 from the feedback i received from a lot of readers it's been really positive and they, they really think that um you know, that it, that it does have something different. And, it, and, I, and they've had the reaction that I was hoping for. They, they they had a very difficult time putting it down because they just couldn't wait to see what happened next.
1: Well, trying to keep it all straight, you say that you had a six-foot-long spreadsheet showing the timeline of each of the, the characters, so, you, you know, you had to make sure that it all made sense.
5: Right, right, yeah, because as you go along, like I said, and you run into a character, you come back, and time a little bit, and you you live their life with them, and as you're doing that, um, their paths are crisscrossing with other characters, and so I had to make sure that their the time was realistic, I guess.
1: Well, it sounds so like that a, was
5: that was actually one of the complicated things I had to do.
1: Sounds like a great movie, make great movie plot.
5: <laughs> yeah, actually, I actually have several people who said this would be a good movie. So here's a
1: man, then that. Uh Sends out an inspirational email that touches the lives of many people. And in, and in the journey, he discovers the significance of the little things in life, along with hope, hopefully finding love. So we're not going to give away the end of the story, but it is filled with these characters who are crisscrossing each other's lives, and they all have a great effect on Jay. Right.
5: And when I when I wrote this story too, um, I wanted it to be. I didn't want it just to be a romance novel. There's there's a lot of humor in, in it. There's a, there's also tragedy. Um, you know, there's it, it pulls several emotions from the reader as they go through this book, which is also, I think, another feature of the book that makes it difficult to put down because it's the book is changing and, and the reader is is constantly being hit with new and fresh information, and it makes them feel differently as they go through the book, which keeps it fresh to them
1: so the story appeals to just about everyone
5: yes yes there's even there's even a character in there Jasper he's a golden retriever and he's a very important character and i I've received um feedback feedback from readers who are saying that they you know that they love Jasper and he's one of their favorite characters, so even animal lovers would will, will, will enjoy this book.
1: Well, Jeremy, tell us how to get your
5: book. Um, you can go to www.jeremyasherauthor.com. Um, from my website, it'll take you straight to dot amazon.com, and um, other places where you can purchase the book. You can obviously purchase it from my publisher, iuniverse.com. And um, it's also available on borders.com and then um, some other sites.
1: Well, thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. That was Jeremy Asher. He is the author of his book, Insignificant Moments.
0: iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.